express that you prayed for me while I was not feeling well. I am feeling better, and so thank you. The Lord answered your prayers. Um, there is probably most everyone that has read any of the Old Testament is familiar with the, what we just read in the Word of God, this narrative of Jacob. Um, but there is a lot here, and this is one of the most fantastic expressions of God's sovereign mercy that you encounter in the Old Testament. I'm going to seek God's help briefly in prayer for this important text of Scripture. Father, help us as we come to this word. It's your word. It's filled with intrigue and interesting facts and points, but most of all, it is spiritual truth that will affect our souls, our eternities, if we understand and heed the lessons in it. And so, Lord, give us strength to hear, wisdom to hear, and to fear you. And I pray the same for me, strength and the fear of God to preach it for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were to die today, would you spend eternity as the friend of the living God, or would you perish in judgment as his enemy? Do you have a peaceful, personal relationship with the living God? Perhaps another way to ask it, have you experienced a radical transformation of your heart and your mind where you may not be what you wish you would be, but you are not what you were? As Jesus said it, have you been born again? Born of above. A spiritual birth, a personal relationship with God, a radical transformation of heart and mind. We could describe all those with the word conversion. Conversion is defined as a, a change from one form to another. Nine Marks Ministry defines Christian conversion as a turning of the whole person away from sin and to Christ for salvation. From idol worship to God worship. From self-justification to Christ-justification. From self-rule to God's rule. The New Testament of the Bible has a lot of examples of individuals' conversion. I think of Peter's confession of Christ's lordship. I think of doubting Thomas as he sadly gets the name of, the description of, who when invited to poke his hands into the holes of the resurrected Christ's hands in his side, instead falls down and says, my Lord and my God. Conversion. The 3,000 who believed after hearing the piercing preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost, and they cry out, what must we do? And the scripture says, then they gladly received the word. The Ethiopian who is reading the Isaiah scroll and he confesses that Christ alone is his Lord, is his Savior, and he is baptized. Probably the most famous, right? Saul of Tarsus. The Christian hating, living on the fringe of religion, dramatically accosted by the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. Blinded physically, yet internally, finally he has eyes to see. 
and he's confront, in his confrontation, he cries out in a simple prayer of conversion, what will you have me to do, Lord? And he becomes the Apostle Paul. Interestingly, with all of those examples of New Testament conversion, we have very few recorded expressions or examples of conversion of Old Testament saints. I mean, we know that Abraham believes God and is imputed to him for righteousness, but we don't really have when, recorded when, he really first, like, gets that jolt of, I believe. Was it when he left Ur? Was it when he left Haran? Was it when he, received, when he left Egypt? What, what, what was going on? We don't have that. We don't know anything about Isaac's conversion or Sarah's conversion. And you go on and on. We don't know those details. But for some reason, God in his kindness and sovereignty chooses to give us the illustration or the story of Jacob's conversion. And that is what we have here in this text. This is not, I believe, the expression of a Christian, a follower of Christ who understood a little bit more, had a little better understanding of what's going on. This is the example of a heel grabber who becomes God's prince. And it's very similar. In fact, mirrors, quite interestingly, Paul the Apostle's conversion, which is another sermon for another day. We are going to spend some time in this story of Jacob's conversion, but I want each of us to remember those questions and not just get caught up in the imagination of the text. The text is easily outlined with a prologue and an epilogue, and there are parallel ideas. In the very beginning, we have this strange prologue of Jacob naming this place Mahanaim. And then we have at the end the epilogue of Jacob naming a place Peniel. And so those are parallel ideas. And then we have part one and part two clearly laid out. First part, Jacob's fear. Second part, Jacob's fight. Interestingly, what we might consider one of the most important parts, the fight, is the shortest of all of the section. And Moses spends a lot of time explaining the fear part. But we immediately come to this prologue, at least when I was studying this, and it's like, this is weird. Why the story starts this way. So Jacob comes to this place, and he's leaving, going back from Haran down to Bethel, because God has said, go to Bethel. He's told him that particular place. Of course, we know why God has said that. That's where God first gave him the covenant promise 20 years before. He has spent 20 years with his uncle Laban, getting married more than he should have and having a lot of kids, getting a lot of sheep and goats and camels and all that sort of stuff. And now God says, go back. And it's good timing because Laban's not so happy with him. And so he's going back from Haran to Bethel. And he comes to this place near the Jabbok River, which interestingly means the wrestling river. He comes to this place named the Jabbok River. It's a main tributary of the Jordan River, about 15 miles north of, of uh, the Dead Sea. And he realizes when he gets there with this big old caravan, and a caravan like that moves slowly, especially when you realize that all of his children are, are adolescents. None of them are adults yet. They're all adolescents. They're young. And he realizes we're not alone. Now, it's been nagging on him since he left Laban that he knows he is going back 
to a more fierce enemy than Laban. In brotherly deceit, usually absence doesn't make the heart grow fonder. And he knows that. And so he's really interested in who this strange camp of strange people is camped at the Jabbok River. And for some reason, I don't know why, the text is very unclear in this or doesn't give us much information, he determines that these are angels. It's an angel camp. Now, why is that the case? Well, why does that matter? Well, I think it fits the whole concept of everything about this story. There is a spiritual there's, this is a holy place. Like something's going on in this place. Why? Well, it's right near Bethel. Right across the Jordan River, straight across or nearly straight across from this area is Bethel, which is called the house of God. So it makes sense right outside the borders of Israel is a place that Jacob calls. How about this is not the house of God. This is the God, camp of God. It's God's camp. Now, what is going on here? I think, first of all, that that's part of it, that this is the place near Jacob's ladder. This is, this is God's house. This is, this is the holy land, the land of promise. And so there's angelic activity there. Now, there's angelic activity everywhere. We, it's actually happening right now. We just don't see it. There's always stuff going on that we don't see and we're not aware of. At times in Scripture, God allows people to see that world very rarely, but there are times when he does that. He does that through the prophets, through Elijah. He allows them to see sort of the angelic hosts of God's servants here. And I believe that's what's happening here. God is simply allowing Jacob to see what's always been there, and that is God's encampment around his covenant people. And so he sees it. Okay, something bigger is going on here than I originally thought. It also, I think the reason in the text here, it sets the stage for this wild encounter later on. So Manhaim simply means, it's, it's not the most creative naming of a place. It's simply in the, in the Hebrew is camp camp or uh, two camps. Um, and so Jacob calls it camp camp because he realizes it's my camp and then God's camp right here. And then that's the prologue. That introduces the story for us. And it leaves us with a lot more questions than we have answers. But the story of the main part, the fear of Jacob, opens up now in the text. Jacob has been busy building a family and flocks. Esau has been busy building an army. There is no contest between the man with 11 and 12, you know, with Dinah included, uh, young children and a shepherd and what we're going to see, an angry brother coming with 400 warriors. Jacob is Esau's sworn mortal enemy. He has promised to kill him and he's a man of his word. Crossing the Jordan, this is why he camps here. Crossing the Jordan enters into Esau's range of territory. Now he's in the south, but we see he has a range of territory. We'll see in the sermons to come. Jacob knows that. Before we cross the Jordan, we gotta have, we gotta have some plan. <laughs> so Jacob has two aspects to his plan. He's going to deal with his fear in two ways. 
First, he's going to scout, and then second, he's going to strategize. Scout it out. So here's what he does. He says, I'm going to send some messengers, and they're going to go find Esau, and they're going to say to him, your servant Jacob humbles himself before Lord Esau. Did you, when you read that, did you notice how dripping that is? Like how like he's on the ground, essentially, virtually through the, you know, through the messenger? Servant Jacob, Lord Esau. I'm just a humble servant here. I have male and female. I'm a, I got a lot of stuff. And that's all I got. And if we got any idea that this isn't born out of fear. The scripture says in double way in the Hebrew, which is emphatic, Jacob was greatly, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. <laughs> it's a big deal. Um, I don't know if the scouts ever actually encounter Esau. I think they don't. Because all they do when they come back is they hurry back to Jacob and they go, so we found your brother Esau and 400 men with him. That's all they're reporting. That's quite the welcoming pro, pro, uh, party for a long-lost brother, isn't it? I think we can easily assume Esau's intentions here. And Jacob understands that. So he's got the scout. Now let's strategize. There's two phases to his strategy. Uh, the two phases are this, defense and, del- and, and diplomacy. <laughs> all right, defense and pl- defense. So he says, let's divide the, and it says this in the text, we read it, it's very clear his motive. Divide everything I have into two camps. Once he going to play on the camp camp again? Divide it into two camps. And his reason for that is not to fight or flank Esau when the battle happens. He says the reason for that is so that while he's slaughtering one of the camps, the other one would be able to get away. That's not a good winning strategy. That's the strategy of one who knows he's a dead man walking, right? That's trying to diminish the collateral damage as much as possible. That's the first defense he had. That's his only defense is let's just try to make it so he doesn't kill everyone. His diplomacy then kicks into high gear here though. So you have to, when you read it, it might just seem like just kind of a bunch of descriptions of animals, but that's not really the point here. What he does is he takes all of his herds and flocks, and it describes there's a lot there. Now, it's interesting. The text says, so he took all that came into his hand. You know what that means? This is everything he owns. He's not giving a portion. He's not, these are not some of the sheep, some of the cows. This is everything. And he takes those, and he takes a servant in each one of the different flocks and herds, and he sends a servant ahead with that flock. And then he takes another one and waits a little bit and send that one ahead. And then send this one ahead. And then send this one ahead. And at the very end are the camels, the, the Rolls Royce of the ancient uh, Middle Eastern world. Like, these were the most expensive. And what he's doing is he's basically trying to kill Esau with kindness. It's like, after each one comes, it's like, it's a gift for Esau. Wait, what's that coming down the road? It's a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. So that Esau be overwhelmed with all these flocks and herds that by the time Jacob gets to him, uh, he'll be so overwhelmed with gratitude, he won't kill him. So 
you can tell that his strategy is desperate, right? But he doesn't just scout and strategize. He also prays. He supplicates. And in Jacob's prayer, and we, there's a, this, is, could be a, this is a sermon in all of itself, and we're not going to, to do that today. This is a good prayer. Right? This is the prayer of one. This is how we should pray when we are so desperate that we feel like we are dead men walking. This is a good prayer. Let me just kind of show you, first of all, some things about this prayer. Um, it's the first recorded prayer of Jacob in all of the Scripture. That might be important when we understand a little bit about what we know of Jacob up to this point, right? The second thing, it is the longest recorded prayer in Genesis. That's interesting. It is born out of tremendous fear. He says before it, he's greatly afraid and distressed. And he still does not identify God as his. He opens the prayer, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. Now, some might think, well, that's bad. I don't think so. I think this may be one of the first times in Jacob's life that he's truly honest with himself and with God and with everyone else. I know you're not my God. I can't claim you. <laughs> I can simply beg before you. Now, in the prayer, what makes it a good prayer is, first of all, that he prays God's words. It's a biblical prayer. It's scripturally accurate. He starts out with, The Lord who said to me, Interesting, Lord there is not Yahweh. He's not using these personal, relational names. We find this is the master, the God, who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will dwell with you. He's first opening his prayer, quoting God's word back to him. Just take note of that. Second thing about this prayer that's good is that he prays with humility. He confesses. I am not worthy. I know who I am. I'm not worthy. The third aspect of this prayer that makes it a good prayer is that he admits God's goodness, mercy, and faithfulness. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth. That's the use there in the context is the faithfulness. You're, you're true, you've been true to me. You've been straight with me. The truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I have become two companies. He's saying, I had nothing and now you've given me so much. You've been good to me. Fourth, he plainly and honestly asks, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau, for I fear him lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. He humbly 
asks. And maybe most importantly, what makes this such a good prayer, even though I think Jacob is doing better than he knows, he anchors the hope of his prayer in the Christ covenant. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Remember how the promises that God gave Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the premier or the pinnacle promise was always the one of the seed to come, the seed to come. And so at the end, what does he anchor his prayer in? The promised seed. He maybe doesn't know he's doing this as well as we do, having seen all the scripture, but he is even um, ignorantly anchoring his hope in the Christ. It's a good prayer. During our prayer service today, we're actually going to pray through it and pray these same things for our lives. Now that he's scouted, now that he's strategized and prayed, it's nighttime. Now he's vulnerable. For some reason, I don't know why, Jacob sends everyone across the Jabbok and then he he goes with them, his family, in the last company and then he goes back across to be alone. There's a lot of speculation here amongst uh, scholars and people and they say, well, he was uh, being a coward here. He was, was, there's all sorts of things they say and the reality is the text leaves us open. We don't know what he's feeling. We don't know why he does this. But I can understand being so overwhelmed with fear that all you can do is like, I gotta get away. I've gotta, I've gotta be by myself. And isolating is what he does. The drama that's being laid out to this point has, is, is palpable, right? You have Jacob in the darkness, all alone, the greatest enemy he has in front of him, no family near him, he's done everything he can. And the anticlimax of the way the scripture says it next is fascinating. And it's kind of weird. It's a literary technique where it's so anticlimactic, it's crazy climactic, right? You know, it's like, it's so like deadpan in what is written next, that it makes us go, what? Because it says, so he's all alone in the darkness by himself and a man wrestles with him. Okay, (laughs) where does that come from? The first question I have is this. Who is this man? Like, okay, so a man wrestles with him. Hosea 12.4, which is interesting, it's the only passage of Scripture that references explicitly Jacob's wrestling match. In Hosea 12.4, the prophet Hosea says, talking about Jacob, he took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength, or in his, that was when he was young, a baby, and then when he became a man, in his strength, in his manhood, he struggled with God. So Hosea tells us who it is, okay? He struggled with God. 
And he describes it further as, yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. Now, we have already gone through this here at Grace because Abraham has multiple, had had multiple encounters with this, the angel of God, the angel of Yahweh. We've already established that. If you don't understand this, you want to know more detail of that, ask me afterwards or go back and listen to those, some of those sermons. But it's very clear that the angel of God or the angel of the Lord, that it is Yahweh, Jehovah, the son of God, who in human form is bringing a divine message. And so this is uh, the Christ who's not yet Christ, right? When I say, because Christ is a title. He hasn't come as the Christ. He's now coming as the angel. And then when he comes through Mary, he'll come as the Christ. So this is a pre-incarnate, a, a preview of Christ. And that's who this is. Now, why does the text just tell us that immediately? By the way, it's not just Hosea that tells us this. Jacob at the very end says, I've wrestled with God, right? So, so he knows, or he figures it out at some point in the match. But why doesn't the text tell us this? Because Moses is such a good storyteller, that's why. And he wants us to sort of go with Jacob on the journey and not just read the last chapter before we get there. But I, I read the last chapter, sorry, spoiler alert. Um, so this is God that he's wrestling with, that he's battling. But that brings a really important question up. Why does God attack him? Why does God come and attack him in the night? I mean, God told him to go to Bethel. So he goes down there, and he encounters God's camp of angels. Okay, a little eerie. And now in the middle of the night while he's alone, God comes up, and sneaks upon him and hits him. Now, there are two possibilities, I think, as to why God attacks him. And it is an attack. Um, when you say wrestled, the reason why the word wrestle is used and not like uh, that the, the angel or, or that this man, you know, uh, beat him up or anything like that is because it's a play on words. It's the word jabbok. So, so Jacob got jabbok at the Jabbok River is the kind of the play on words that Moses is using in, in the Hebrew here. And that's why the word wrestle is used. It doesn't mean that they had rules of the match and, you know, he scored points for takedowns and stuff like that. This is an assault. This is an ass he's being assailed in the middle of the night by an unfriendly being, a person. So two possibilities. Some say that God is testing Jacob. That is he truly ready to cross the river? Did he really believe what he just prayed? And God is like, I'll test him and see if he's ready. That's possible, and it's not against, I think, the, the reading of the text of Scripture. But I don't believe that's the likely interpretation of why God attacked Jacob. I believe God, who does know the end from the beginning, who is sovereign over all and is all-knowing, yes, but I believe God attacks him because he is opposing Jacob. You see, Jacob needs to stop playing games. Either Jacob is with Yahweh or not. This encounter will prove whether Jacob is a friend of Yahweh or an enemy. He either will be converted or he will die. This is it. Now, if you say that sounds like a strange thing for God to do, it is a strange thing for God to do. 
It's not the only time God has done used this illustratively. A similar situation comes up in Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 and 26 with Moses, where he was called by God to lead the people, and he gets ready to do it all, but he didn't circumcise his sons. So the scripture says, so God met him in the way to kill him. Once again, another sermon altogether to talk about, but we do have another example in Scripture where God's like, no, 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 I'm opposing you. And I think there is something here that's really important in this. Jacob just fled Laban, who he thought was the worst enemy he had. But now he's about to encounter Esau, who's like, no, 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 Esau's the worst enemy I have. But what Jacob didn't know is that, he, that God is actually the worst enemy he has. As Jesus himself said, don't fear the one who can harm your body. Fear the one who has power over your soul, who can cast your soul into hellfire. Fear that one. Fear God more than man. And if there's anything we know about Jacob, it's been the exact opposite. He hasn't feared God. He bargains with him. He plays with him. The unconverted heart of Jacob is still a heart at war with God. Yes, he's recently been growing downward. He's been being humbled in his messy dealings with his wives and Laban and all that. But God resists the proud, yet gives grace to the humble. And he is still in opposition to Yahweh until he is converted. Now, the story is fascinating. Jacob makes a valiant effort to fight. And the language can sometimes sound like, just the way the Hebrew would tell the story to us, it can kind of sound like, oh, Jacob's winning, and then the angel wins, and Jacob's winning. But when you read like the whole story as a whole, and you recognize that when this mysterious man decides the battle, it's time for the wrestling match to be over, and so he reaches over and taps his hip, and Jacob falls into a crippled mass on the ground, grabbing on, then we realize that this mysterious man was never in any real danger of losing the fight, right? I mean, that's, that's sort of like the, the, the point of the story is like, and it, and it says that. Now, touched can be hit, hit hard, but even then it says he touched his hip or he hit his hip, but it says that the, the muscles inside shrank. In other words, he didn't get a deep bruise. Something internally, supernaturally happened when this happened. So I, like he's, this mysterious man is not like, oh no, Jacob might win. Whatever am I going to do? I think up until that point, Jacob probably thinks he's got a shot. When this happens and he goes limp and it says, and he, in the way the text reads, it sounds like some people say, well, yeah, so he kept fighting. Kind of. Just the way, it, the way it reads, it sounds maybe like that, but it's actually, a, I think, a better understanding that, like, like you know how a person, if they get uh, knocked flat, and I, this is a horrible, horrible illustration for the nerds out there that have ever seen the movie Monty Python. 
It's like having your arms cut off and your legs cut off, and you're like, I'm going to get you. Like, it's not going to happen, right? And I think that's really what you have with Jacob here. He's like, he's like and, the, and the angel could be saying, what are you going to do, bleed on me? Like, what are you, like, you going to do with this? Like, here's the idea. Jacob, and that, this is the point because it says he's clinging, or he's, the, the angel says, stop clinging to me. So he's not trying to win now. He's just trying not to let this man go. And that's why I believe Jacob has finally got it. When he gets touched in the hip, he realizes, I know who this is. <laughs> I know who it is. And it's my biggest, he's my biggest enemy. But what happens when one realizes that God is his biggest enemy? Run from him? Try to, try to kick at him? What, what are you going to do when you finally get it? I'm an enemy of God. Hold on to that enemy and pray that that enemy is really your friend. And that's what Jacob is doing here. So the angel, the Lord God, says to him, stop holding on to me. Stop clinging to me. Now, why does he say that? Doesn't he want him to do that? Absolutely. This is very similar. The, the, the conversations we see with God and, and individuals through the angels, through messengers in the Old Testament, is very similar. God always comes asking questions. He always comes with rhetoric. He always comes with like trying to get at the heart of the situation. And so why is he saying that? Is the angel who just touched his hip and Jacob can't really do anything and he's crippled? And by the way, he's crippled from here for the rest of his life. He, is, is he really afraid? He's not going to like, oh no, the sun's going to come and something bad's going to... No, I think what he's actually saying to Jacob is here, why are you holding on to me? Jacob, that, you've ne you, you don't want me. You want my stuff. You bargained with me for that. You don't, stop holding on to me. Live in your darkness, Jacob. Stop holding on to me. Jacob responds, as we often do when we have nothing else to respond with. I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, right away, we know Jacob knows who this is now. Because if you're in a battle against an enemy and, he says, and he's just defeated you and he says, let me go, you let him go, Right? Furthermore, if you're like, no, I think I still have a chance to win, you don't say, bless me. You say, say, uncle. Say, I beat you. I won. Sub submit to me. I'm the... Jacob says, I won't let you go because you are greater than me, as the author of Hebrews clearly lays out. The lesser is always blessed by the greater. And Jacob gets that. Who's the lesser? Who's the greater? In humility, he says, I won't let you go. I need you to bless me. You, and the word bless there, has the idea of you be gracious to me. You show grace. 
show your grace. Shower me with your grace. Put your favor on me. He cannot mean physical blessing. You know why we know he cannot mean physical blessing? He has it. He already has it. Jacob has spent his life trying to bless himself in whatever way he could. Now he's pleading with God to be merciful to him and for God to bless him. A.W. Pink puts it better than I could, so I'm going to quote him. No longer, this is what Pink says, no longer could Jacob wrestle. All he could do was cling. Hitherto Jacob had sought to order his own life, planning, scheming, and devising, but now he was left alone. He has shown what a perfectly helpless creature he was in himself. Up to this point, he had held fast by his own ways and means, but now he is brought to say, I will not let thee go. And the man's response reveals the true nature here, his true character, because he now says, what is your name? Now, once again, this is like, like God coming to Adam and saying, where are you? He doesn't not know it. He wants Jacob to say it. Because what happens when Jacob says his name? What is he saying? Remember what his name means? What's your name, Jacob? I am heel grabber. I am deceiver. I am schemer. And Jacob is converted. And God says to him, No, you're not. Not anymore. You're Israel now. Now, the Hebrew here is kind of vague and difficult, and that's why if you have multiple translations, you'll see it read different ways. Some read it this way, the way it's read here. I think this is probably not the best way to read it. But I'll just read what the New King James says it here. And he says, you are Jacob, you are no longer Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled or jabbocked with God and with men and have prevailed. And some think that he's saying, well, that sounds like he's saying, oh, since you beat me, and I'll change your name Israel because you've struggled with God and prevailed. But that's not really the way I think it should be read according to just sort of looking through the, the structure here. It's, I think the, probably the best rendering of it is actually the old King James Version, the way it renders it in this text, um, where he says, uh, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob but Israel, for as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, they say, well, where's that prince part comes in there? Because it doesn't say prince. It actually doesn't say prince in the Hebrew. The difficulty with that is the meaning of the word Israel. We don't really know exactly what Israel means. Uh, because there's two, two Hebrew words, Sarah and Sarat. And they sound nearly identical. They look nearly identical. And some texts say Sarah, some texts say Sarat. And Sarat has the idea of... of uh, Battler, striver, fighter, and Sarat has the idea of prince or royal one. And so uh, in order to, I think, get the sense that there is a, actually, I think, a connection between these two, I think that's why the, 
uh, old King James translators chose to say, well, let's bring both ideas into the text because both ideas are present there in Israel. And so I think what he is saying is, I think a good way to read it is, is like this. You are Israel, God's prince who now fights. And you have st- the strength of God, thus you will prevail over men. So I'm not say- I don't believe he's saying you've fought God, even though that is what happens here, or he's prevailed over God, but because of the strength of God, you will prevail over men, which I think is a, an immediate answer to his prayer, deliver me from Esau. You're going to be okay. The implications of this new name are a few. And I think you can work this out on your own, do some study yourself. Let me just give you a couple of ideas here. First of all, there is a categorical conversion. Jacob is truly converted. God no longer views him as Jacob. He now views him as Israel. There is clearly, this is the mark of his conversion, is his new name, his new identity, a categorical movement from what he was to now what he is. And that categorical movement is God's perspective of him has changed. God's view of him, his identity is no longer Jacob, his identity is now Israel. So there's one thing really important. There's a categorical conversion. He moves categories before God. But other interesting about this name Israel is that it's a play on words honoring the matriarch Sarah. In this name Israel, it's Sarah is embedded in the name. Now, why would he be honoring Sarah? Oh, I mean, she's worthy of honor, but is that all this there just because of that? No, I think there's something else here. I think there is an, in the honor of the spiritual matriarch, the mother of all who are truly spiritually alive, just like Abraham is the father of all who are spiritually alive. The Bible talks about that. There is a homage paid not only to Sarah, but to Eve, the mother of all living. And it's constant through the Bible. This, like one of the, this is one of those undercurrent little like things that's weaving through there, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Because in the promise to Eve, reminds Eve, God reminds Eve, your son, your seed, will be the prince of God who fights, right? The one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And then tell Sarah, Sarah, your seed, your son, he's, he's going to bless all the nations, mother, seed. And then the New Testament, it speaks of the same thing. You, you think you go from Eve to Sarah to Mary, highly favored of the Lord, you know, because your son is the prince who fights. I think in this homage to Sarah, it's not really even necessarily about her, but it's this constant drawing us back that Genesis and Moses is always doing and throwing us back to Genesis 3.15, throwing us back to this promise of the snake crusher to come. But then that also, this name Israel throws us forward. It's a forever reminder that Jesus, who is identified in the New Testament as the true Israel of God, Jacob will fight, and he's God's prince who fights. But Jacob's still Jacob. In fact, I see this in the fact that as soon as God says, what's your name? Jacob. 
holding his hip. No, not Jacob, Israel, you've prevailed. Yeah, well, what's your name? And then I like how the Lord responds, why are you asking my name? Like, I'm not even going to tell, what in the world? This reminds me of Peter, like, no, Lord, we should, we should set up all these booths for us to hang out. And look, like, you just like when you do good, it's like, why, why? Just keep your mouth shut. Like, just like, you've heard it, okay, stop. And I, I don't know about you, but I struggle with that all the time. Like, okay, something good, you know, God's done something really good. Zip it. Um, so Jacob's still Jacob. But you know, there's one of his sons that's coming to him and has come for us who is the full, true Israel, the final prince of God who will fight and, and has in his cross crushed the head of Satan and will one day soon crush that same head forever under our feet in Christ. So this points us toward him. So it points us back to Sarah, to Eve, points us toward Christ, Israel, the prince of God who fights. Now, back to the wrestling match. Jacob has been gloriously converted. But God blesses him. What's your name? Uh, why are you asking my name? And then the text ends and says, and he blessed him. And he blessed him. He blessed him with the grace of new life. And you know, Jacob is about a hundred years old. Don't lose hope in praying for those whom you love who need to be converted. Jacob is nearly a hundred years old here. And finally, finally he's ready to say, I will not let you go until you bless me. The text ends now with this epilogue. Jacob knows what's happened. He knows it's crazy. So he names the place Peniel, which means face of God. I've been in the face of God and I, I survived. That down sounds like somebody who didn't think, I almost had him, right? He's like, I've been in the face of God and I'm, I'm still here. The story ends there. Picks up in the next chapter with, you know, you know, conversion, encounter with God, one of the most remarkable things in all of Scripture. But tomorrow we still got to meet his brother. Boy, if this isn't humanity, is it? <laughs> like this is like so so real. We'll pick up that story tomorrow because I want to spend just a few minutes with some implications before we're done. I'm just going to go through this quickly. Because when we read this, we often think, uh, that was strange, that was weird. Wrestling with God, all that, and it is different and is unique. But I actually believe that in Jacob's conversion is the principle of everyone's conversion. Which is why I think it mirrors the Apostle Paul so well, one of the reasons. Let me explain to you what I mean. Not in, not in the uh, little physical wrestling and getting hit in the hip and all that sort of stuff but in what's going on under the surface. First of all, this. A true conversion is initiated and accomplished by God. God comes to Jacob to fight with him. God blesses him. God hits his hip. God names him. And when Jacob tries to level the playing field by, he's like, I got a name for you, God's like, no, you don't. 
God names him. Jacob, best he can do is name a place. God names a man. What does Jacob contribute to his conversion? Jacob contributes the filth that needs converting. He contributes the sin. He contributes the depravity. He contributes the deceptions. God does the converting. As Ephesians 2 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I don't know who said it. It's been said by many far before me. But if we were dead in our trespasses, the only thing that a dead man can do is stink. True conversion is initiated and accomplished by God. Number two, a true conversion demands humility. We might think that the last 20 years of Jacob's life has been a waste. Why didn't God do this 20 years ago when he was in Bethel? Well, what's been happening for 20 years? God has been doing a gracious work of humiliation. Pushing, pushing, pushing. Similar to the prodigal son, Jacob cannot be converted until he lifts his eyes, sees the pig slop, and says, what am I doing here? What, what is this? I quoted it before, I quote it again. 1 Peter 5, 5, quoting James quotes it, quoting a proverb. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Number three, a true conversion is experienced only through faith in Yahweh, in faith in God. The image of Jacob clinging to the Lord as the dawn breaks, his hisp hip dislocated and crying out, I will not let you go, that is an allusion to faith alone. That is an allusion to rest alone. That is an allusion to what the author of Hebrews means when he says, without faith it is impossible to please God. For the one who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Those who hold, those who say, I, I have nothing else. Faith alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Fourth, a true conversion is expressed in visible fruit that follows. Some of that fruit we're going to have to read about next week. But very briefly, subtly, from this day forward, Jacob walks with a limp. Those who encounter the true and living God and are truly born again, I'm not sure who coined it this way, but someone did, Walk with a limp rather than a swagger. And we'll see more evidences of this. Jacob's in the last camp. You know where we find him when he meets his brother? He's in the first camp. He runs to his brother. He gives him everything. And he says, your inheritance, what I stole, there's fruit in his conversion. He's different. 
And ultimately, a true conversion brings a new royal identity. From Jacob to Israel. The New Testament speaks of those who are born again. Romans 8, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. Joint heirs with Christ, a new royal identity. John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become called, or to be called children of God, sons, inheritors, those who believe on his name. When a person is converted, he moves categories from sinner to son, enemy to friend, wicked to righteous, out of Christ to in Christ, a new identity forever beloved and accepted of God and at eternal peace with Him. Categorical shift, a royal identity. Thank you for your patience as I went a little long today, but I, I want to close with, with a brief illustration. Many years ago, a young man was filled with fear. He'd heard God's Word often, He'd hoped that he would be, could be forgiven of his sins and avoid God's judgment. This young man was in despair because he'd prayed many times. He's afraid. He hadn't done enough. He hadn't prayed with enough zeal and vigor. He hadn't really meant it enough. And God, he didn't believe, had heard him. So on a dark night, wandering alone in the woods, trying to get away from all the people around him. Fear gripped him. He, this young man recited the memory verses he'd learned in church from his parents. He still felt like God wasn't hearing him. In desperation, he cried out, his voice piercing the darkness. He said something like this, God, I can't do this anymore. I can't sleep. I can't think about anything else. And he said, if you want to send me to hell, then go ahead and do it. I cannot do anything about it anyways. I just have to trust that you will do what is right. But instantly, it was like a light came on in his head. That's it. I'm just going to trust you. I can't do anything anyways. He kept saying those words as he wandered back toward camp. Just going to trust you. Seems like that young man had been wrestling forever. How could he have missed something so simple? He thought, just going to trust you. I'm glad that God converted Jacob. But I'm a thousand more times that God converted that boy that night in the woods a few years ago. Now I have a peaceful relationship with him. Do you have a peaceful relationship with the living God? Have you been born again? Have you been converted?